Welcome to Careers in Discovery, your window into the world of leaders in pharma and biotech. Brought to you by Singular Talent, making hiring better for organizations involved in drug discovery and R&D. Mark Mackey is one of the founders of Cresset, a computational chemistry company who have built a reputation for high quality computational solutions in drug discovery. Now the Chief Scientific Officer, Mark shared his journey through the twists and turns that come with building an organically grown company, as well as his views on the role of computational chemistry in drug discovery. Today I'm with Mark Mackey of Cresset. Mark, welcome to Careers in Discovery. Thank you, Tom. Good to see you. Um, as always, it'd be great to start talking about Cresset and the work you're doing there and, and the company as it is today. Can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, so Cresset's a computational um, drug discovery software company. Mm -hmm. So the way I like to think about it is that all of the sort of traditional drug discovery organizations, biotechs and big farmers and so on, they're all out trying to find um, new therapies and in particular for the field we're looking at new small molecule drugs mm -hmm. and our role is to provide them with better tools so that they can find those drugs more cheaply more efficiently more quickly yes and in particular the way we do that is by developing computational methods to describe how small molecules behave and how small molecules can interact with big molecules mm -hmm. and that then gives you some insights into what you need to change about a small molecule sort of chemistry candidate in order to give it some of the properties that it's going to need if it's going to make it through into clinical trials and eventually you know, actually treating people in the real world. I see. So developing tools to, to enable that research and to, to gain those insights. And interestingly, I'm sure you, know, you, you have some thoughts on this, but we've certainly seen a lot more small molecule companies coming back to the market over the last few years where it was you know, very much cell therapies and antibodies for quite some time. It was, it was all biologics all the time yeah. <laughs> for, for, for quite a while there. Sort of, uh, you know, small molecule drug discovery was starting to look a little bit sort of dinosaur era. <laughs> so you're right, it, it does seem to be sort of back on the upswing because there are still a lot of diseases and a lot of um, things which really can only be sensibly treated with small molecule therapies. Yes. And that's going to remain true for a while. Yes. And we'll talk a little bit about um, your journey with Cresset uh, as we talk about this as well. But I, I guess I was also interested in um, your view on there's a lot of computational approaches around in the market at the moment. Mm -hmm. There's computational biology, computational chemistry, machine learning for genomics, that kind of thing. Um, first of all, I suppose, where do you guys particularly fit into that? And, and also, what's your view on the computational space in drug discovery and where it is and that kind of thing. Yeah, so we're very much focused on the, the early stage yeah. of drug discovery. So our primary focus is on tweaking a molecule so that it will fit its designed target. Mm -hmm. So you're looking for a new inhibitor of a protein X, and you maybe already have a, a small molecule hit that does bind to protein X, but not well enough. We provide software to try and understand what protein X looks like, to try and understand what your small molecule hit looks like. And then to give you some guidance as well, if you're going to change it to try and make it bind more strongly, yes. what sorts of things are going to be a good idea and what sorts of things are going to be a bad idea? Yeah, I see. And so this is all very early stage because you know, th there's a, a lot of properties that a molecule needs to be a drug. Mm -hmm. 
you know, activity is the obvious one. Right. But then you've got all of the your bioavailability and solubility and tox and cost of manufacture. And you know, there's loads of other properties. And we dabble at the edges of a few of those. But our primary focus really is on that, that initial binding event, mm -hmm. uh, which is why you know, most of the use of our software, most of our customers are in that, that earlier phase of the chemistry when you know, you're still trying to get affinity, you're still trying to optimize affinity or possibly trying to re retain affinity while you're tweaking the molecule to get rid of you know, some other nasty properties it has. Yes, I see. But it, it's all very much preclinical. It's, it's well before anything hits um, yeah, humans. Of course. I, and I'm assuming some of the big advantages of approaching this computationally are that you can do it more quickly because the computer can simulate more options and also, I guess, do it in some ways cheaper than, than going into the lab and testing them all manually. Is that is that really where? Yeah, in essence, the issue is that your medicinal chemistry is still an art form. Right. Um, you know, we, we don't really understand molecular interactions perfectly. Um, and we certainly don't understand biology perfectly. And mm -hmm. the interaction of the two is a, you know, a whole sort of black hole of, of ignorance. <laughs> and so your chemistry drug discovery programs have a lot of trial and error in them. Right. Now that there's a problem we need to fix. We're not sure exactly what we need to do to fix that. And so we'll just make a whole bunch of different you know, variations on the molecule mm -hmm. in the hope that one of them sticks. Um, and it'd, it'd be nice if sort of computational chemistry had um, you know, delivered the hype that was being pushed, you know, sort of in the mid nineties was probably the, the, the peak of that, that you know, by now you'd have the auto drug button on your computer <laughs> that would design you the perfect molecule. Yes. You know, we're still miles away from that. <laughs> So you, we can't actually predict the properties well enough to really tell you what's going to work, but we can usually give you some hints of you know, this is more likely to work than that, and this other one's likely not to work. And as a result, as a medicinal chemist, instead of having to make you know, 5,000 molecules before you find the one that has the right properties, maybe you only need to make 3,000. Right. And there's still a lot of trial and error in there, but we've just saved you you know, tens of millions of dollars in research expenses mm -hmm. and two years on your drug discovery pipeline. Yes. That's well worth doing. Yes, absolutely. It is, yeah, it is a difficult field to work in though, because we are still very ignorant about how a lot of this works. So mm -hmm. a lot of our predictions are going to be wrong. Um, and if you, you know, talk to people, especially in the, in the chemistry side of drug discovery, there's often this some um, friction between the computational chemists and the people who are doing you know, the real work out in the labs. Right. Um, because you know, we're the ones who say, what well, you, know, you need to make this and you shouldn't make that. And then of course, you know, a reasonable fraction of the time they'll make what we suggest. And actually it doesn't work because we're not perfect. Sure. Um, and so the adage goes is that the ones that work were all the chemists ideas, the ones that didn't work were all the computational <laughs> chemists ideas. Um, that, that's not strictly true, but no, uh, the, 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 there is a, you know, occasionally elements of disagreement there. Yes, but it, it raises an interesting challenge, I suppose, because it, it, you've touched on it there. Computers are very good at doing things if you can tell them how to do those things, right? Yes. Um, whereas if there's still this gap in understanding, I suppose that that both technically from a from a development point of view and also scientifically creates some interesting problems to solve, I can imagine. It does. And... It's one of these where, you know, actually, if you go and talk to a physicist, you know, everything I do is, is it's a solved problem, right? You know, we've right. got the Schrodinger equation, the Schrodinger equation, you solve that, it tells you how everything's going to work. Mm -hmm. you know, the, where's the challenge in that? Um, 
The issue is that the systems we're looking at are large, they're complicated, they're in water, which is a real nightmare. Your life yeah. would be so much easier if people are actually sort of vacuum beings. <laughs> you know, there wasn't any water there. Yeah, we'd be much, much further ahead in terms of uh, yes. medicine. <laughs> and all of these, we, we really actually don't understand a lot of the basic physics and chemistry behind them. Mm. And the interactions we're looking at is you know, proteins are big molecules. You're trying to work out the interactions with your small molecule. Yeah. And you're doing that by trying to calculate all of the energetics of you know, what interacts with what and what the energies are. And you know, the analogy I found of Andy Vinti would like to use was you're, you're trying to weigh the, you know, work out the weight of the captain of the Titanic by right. weighing the Titanic with him on it and weighing the Titanic <laughs> without him on it and taking the difference. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, very small errors in our description of the system can end up in errors in the thing we're trying to measure, which are mm. larger than the thing we're trying to measure. Yeah, I see. Interesting. And then, so um, as chief scientific officer of this type of company, which, yep. you know, obviously there are heavy scientific elements to it, but the core product is a technology. Where, where do you focus, Mark? Where do you spend your time? And, and what's, what's the sort of... I have a slightly split role within the company. Um, so formally, I'm the, the chief scientific officer. So I look after our sort of research and development team. Yeah. Um, and that's all about looking at what problems our customers have at the moment and how mm -hmm. we can solve those. What problems we think our customers are going to have next year and the year after and looking at ways to solve that. Um, but I'm also um, in charge of the software development team. Okay. For the uh, the desktop software, so I've I've got a reasonably sort of um, strong programming background. Um, mm -hmm. I was sort of the, the chief programmer in the early days of Cresset. Yes. And so I still look after the development team and are sort of fairly heavily involved with the design of the software and how it works from a, a, a computer science perspective rather than from a chemistry perspective. Yes, I see, and I imagine translating between the two of those. Yeah, and there's things where you know the, the software is easy, but the chemistry is hard, and there's yeah. other things where the chemistry is easy, but the software is hard. Right, and it's uh, they're trying to find the intersection between those. Yes, I see, I see. And, and Crescent as a company now, tell us a bit about where you're at as a business and and what's going on in the company currently. Yeah, so Crescent started back at the end of 2001, started 2002, mm. um, so we've been around for quite a long time now. Uh, it was, we started off originally with the idea of being a services company. Mm -hmm. So we, we had invented a method of comparing molecules together. So you know, given a molecule A, you can tell whether a molecule B is similar to A or not in a yeah. way that was you know, scientifically interesting and hopefully biologically interesting. And so the original business plan was that we would be a, a virtual screening company. That, mm -hmm. you know, small biotechs that didn't really have a lead compound or had a lead compound but couldn't really do anything with it could come to us and we could then search through the, you know, the universe of commercially available compounds and give them a shopping list of, you know, hey, here, here are some compounds that we think are likely to be active in your protein target. Yes. Off you go and buy those and test them and that'll give you a leg up on your drug discovery program. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that was business model A. Yes. We, we, we went through about another five or six business models the following two years, but yeah. that, that was the original idea behind it. Okay. And then, and then today the focus is obviously much broader, but I, I guess um, I'm always interested in the origins of, of businesses and what makes people step out and take those steps. And mm -hmm. um, I, I, I mentioned this before we started recording, but we've had a lot of people on the, on the podcast who are maybe in the early years of um, building a business. Um, obviously you've been involved 
in in building Crescent for for longer than that. And I'm always interested to start with the where the business has come from, and it'd be really interesting to hear a bit more about that journey, the different business models, the the steps yeah, the early the days. Yeah. So the main background was our sort of our primary founder, Andy Vinter. Um, was a sort of pioneer of computational chemistry really, mm -hmm. in a sense, and that you know, he was working on computational chemistry and drug discovery way back in the early days of you know, punched cards and VT right. terminals and, and things like that. Um, and he had developed a, as, as part of that his own way of describing molecules. So the, the B in Andy's bonnet was electrostatics. Okay. But if you wanted to understand why a molecule interacted with another molecule, you know, what do they actually see about each other? Well, what they see is an electric field. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to describe molecules, you really ought to be describing them in terms of electrostatics rather than in terms of carbons and nitrogens and hydrogens and you know, the rest of the paraphernalia of chemistry. Yes. So Andy had developed his own science around that. Um, and because his ideas didn't really fit into anybody else's software suites, he'd written all of his own software as well. I see. So he'd, he'd in essence developed a, a sort of one-man consultancy business, mm -hmm. um, going around advising companies, providing computational chemistry support um, to largely UK biotechs. And it was all built on top of a, a software stack that he'd written himself to implement mm -hmm. his own ideas. And Cresset basically came out of um, Andy being persuaded that you know, just being a one-man band was, was all very well, but if he actually wanted to take his ideas to a wider audience, mm. then we needed to sort of you know, turn it into a, a proper company and start you know, pushing the ideas further than a you know, one-man consultancy can do. Yeah. And so I got pulled in in the early days because I'd done, a, in essence, a, an industrial postdoc with Andy and had played around with the code. Um, and I was one of the very, very few people in the world who actually knew how any of it worked. Right, okay. <laughs> And so when he decided to you know, turn his one-man business into a company, he invited me on board as one of the founders. And that's, you know, so that's how I got involved. Yes, makes sense. And, and you mentioned you had an idea of what the business was going to look like originally. And yes. that, that changed a little bit over the next few years, which, which is normal, but it's yep. good to stay agile. <laughs> um, tell us a bit about that. You know, how, how did you arrive at the, the eventual business model and what were the sort of key steps along that? Yes, we were quite lucky. We got initial seed funding from the Wellcome Trust, mm -hmm. um, which came with sort of many fewer strings attached than traditional um, sort of VC funding. Right, yes. So that was enough, you know, largely to run us as a sort of small research organization for mm. one and a half to two years to try and get the ideas off the ground. Yeah. And so we built the ideas that Andy had into sort of a, a virtual screening platform to, to go and sort of you know, run this consultancy business. And what we found over the course of those two years was that it's actually very hard to make money in a services business. Right. Okay. That, you know, in essence, we're, we're providing something that was quite valuable to small, to early stage biotechs, but it wasn't something that they or their funders were willing to cough up large amounts of cash up front for. I see. Okay. Um, so yeah, you could make money, but it was, you know, you could easily make enough money to keep a, a one man consultancy business going, which is what Andy had been doing, <laughs> yeah. but not really enough to keep a proper company going with the resources we had at the time. Mm -hmm. So the major pivot we meant, um, on those, um, first stages, uh, was to say, well, okay, if the consultancy business is hard, 
maybe we should have a look at actually providing the software as well. So yeah, we'll do consultancy for the small companies that don't have the resources or the infrastructure yeah. to run the software. But let's actually talk to the big guys who aren't interested in consultancy. They've already got their own computational chemists. But maybe they would want to use the software mm. to um, yeah, screen their own compound collections rather than just the commercially available compounds. Yes. And so that was the, the big pivot that actually kept Cressa going um, over those first years was actually turning the, the virtual screening platform we built for internal use into a software product and then licensing that out yeah. to big pharma companies. Which is quite a different business model. It's a very different business model. Yeah. Um, and it has its challenges because all of a sudden you're you know, talking to internal companies, IT teams, and there's a whole realm of IT support issues yeah. and so on that you don't have to deal with. The thing that made it much easier, in a sense, in the consultancy business is that software can be recurring revenue. Right, yes. In that once you sold somebody your software, then the renewal fees or the support fees or, or whatever, as long as, you, as long as they're happy with it, those will keep on rolling in in mm -hmm. a way that isn't true as much for a consultancy in that you know, if your consultancy business is, let's find some chemistry starting matter for a biotech, once you've done that, they've got that. Yeah. And they don't need you until they've got another target. And you know, little biotechs don't have secondary targets for quite a long time. Yes. Yes, I see. And, and as you mentioned, you were, you were chief programmer early on. So you were dealing with a lot of those, uh, those IT challenges. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yes. So we, we had some memorable disasters. So there was one, uh, the, the first big um, biotech sort of sale we tried. It wasn't a bio, it was a big pharma sale. Mm. Um, we got an evaluation with a, a big pharma company who I probably shouldn't name. Okay, that's fine. And it was a complete, everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong. Because <laughs> it turned out that you know, we were really happy with how the software worked, but we'd only tested it in-house. And then when it hit their computing infrastructure, uh, I spent an awful long time on planes going backwards and forwards to, to various parts of Europe, trying to get the software working over a period of about three or six months. Yes. And it, it never really worked that well. And as a result, you know, they were our first evaluator. They weren't our first customer. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you learn from that, right? <laughs> I, we, we learned a tremendous amount yeah. from that. And I, I'm just grateful that we had that experience early enough that we hadn't quite run out of seed funding um, yes. before we got to the, the second evaluator who did become a customer. There we go. There we go. And it, interesting, you talked there as well about um, that recurring revenue, but also the fact that as long as the customer remains happy with the product, you yes. can count on that revenue. And then thinking about what you said earlier, one of the parts of your role is anticipating the challenges that your customers are likely to face. Um, so I suppose those two things go quite hand in hand, right? And, and you have to, I would imagine you have to stay quite ahead of the trends in, in medicinal chemistry. Yeah, it's, it's actually quite difficult because um, you do come across um, I think there's, there's a quote um, by Henry Ford saying if, if he'd gone and asked his customers what they wanted, they'd have asked for a faster horse. Yes. Okay. So yeah, actually asking the customers what they want isn't always the mm. best way of finding out what the trends are going to be. Um, but one of the ways that we actually try to differentiate ourselves in the market um, is we put a lot of emphasis on ease of use mm -hmm. because I think it's it's a trend for software everywhere is that you, know, you add you add features to software. You know, every year it's got a new button or a new couple of buttons, and it's very easy for software suites to turn into enormous conglomerations of menus upon menus upon submenus of tabs and widgets and pop up 
windows and they become impossible to use. Mm -hmm. So we've actively you know, really fought hard against that from day one. And we put a lot of effort into making the software easy to use. And actually, if you ask our customers or, you know, or evaluators, if we're going out to present to a, a potential new customers, they're not interested in that. Okay. And they're interested in, you know, is it going to help my drug discovery? Is your science good? Are you going to give me good answers? So, you know, so and they're right, the science, the science has to be good. Mm. But actually, you know, as often as not, we go back at the end of the evaluation and say, well, you know, have you tried the software? Did you like, oh, yeah, it's really easy to use. Yeah. It's great. I can set up an experiment <laughs> in five minutes. Yeah. And so it, it's not on the criteria that you know, gets them to evaluate in the first place, but it's a big part of the criteria in getting people to buy the software is that if people find it easy to use, they then use it. And if mm. people use it, then they get value out of it. It makes sense. And I suppose if it, if it wasn't easy to use, that would become apparent very, very quickly as well. You know, you know people have limited time to evaluate software. Yeah. So if they open it up and they can't work out how it works and mash a couple of buttons to get an answer that's silly, they'll close it down and you've lost a sale. So yes. Yes, makes sense. So, so you pivoted to this, this shared model of, of services and software. Yes. Um, and then this was around when, roughly? 2005. 2005, okay. So then you've got a, a couple of years there, before, well, probably three years until the market, the economy as a whole starts to fall apart. It wasn't as bad yes. in biotech, of course, as it, it was wasn't as bad in biotech. Some other places. Yep. Um, but there's been various trends, and we touched on the sort of antibody cell therapy biologic trend earlier as well that, that have come along that time. What, what have been the key points on that? that journey of the company, do you think? And what are the things that stick in the memory, either positively or, or in terms of challenges? Yeah, so I think the two sort of big challenges that we've met, so the first was your original product was very much sort of enterprise software, mm -hmm. okay? It, it had to be run on a computing cluster. It was big iron. It had a sort of web-based interface. You, yeah. know, you submitted jobs and you came back two days later to see if your job had finished. And so the first big change was when we actually then from there launched our first desktop product, mm -hmm. which was quite different for us. That was a, a learning curve, both in terms of you know, none of us had really done graphical user interfaces or desktop programming before. Right. Okay. So that, that was quite a big learning curve. Yes. And it also is slight, a slightly different sales market in that you're not selling to, to groups. You're more selling to individuals. Mm -hmm. Here's our software. You know, install it on your desktop and tell us if you like it rather than you know, arranging a large group-wise evaluation license yes I see. ahead of time so it was the first big change and then the second big change is actually sort of underway at the moment mm. in that at least at the start we were ligand based drug design specialists mm -hmm. um, and let me unpack what that means if you're trying to work out why a small molecule binds to a, a protein, there's in essence two family of techniques you can use. One is to have a look at the structure of the protein. Yeah. Okay. And look at the protein and then compare that to the molecule and try and work out what, if anything, you need to tweak in the molecule to make it bind better to the protein. Mm -hmm. And that's structure-based design because you're working from the structure base, from the structure of the protein. And then in ligand-based design, instead, actually what you're doing more is looking at what are the molecules that we made and how did they work and how didn't they work. So rather than saying, you know, here's a molecule and a protein, it's all, okay, here are 30 molecules I've made, all which are related to each other. And yes. some of them work better and some of them work worse. What trends are there in there that we can use to get information out? Mm -hmm. 
And we, from the start, we were really ligand-based drug design specialists. Our speciality was comparing small molecules to each other and yeah. see what was similar and what was different and using that to, to pull information out about uh, what you needed to improve. And the downside of being specialized in that one area is that we, our software couldn't do everything. Because mm -hmm. okay, most drug discovery programs, you do some structure-based stuff and you do some ligand-based stuff and it's a mixture of both. There's very few programs that are you know, all one or the other. Yeah, I see. And as a result, everybody had you know, one of the big software packages for computational chemistry that did do everything. And then they bought Cressid as an add-on because <laughs> we did the ligand-based stuff better than the big software package that they had. Right. Because we were specialists in it. But of course, that means we're always the nice to have. You know, if the budgets get squeezed and you've got to drop something, you can't drop the big package because it does things that we don't. Yeah. And it, you know, in essence, it limited our ability to really sort of tackle the market as some you know, as well as we would like. Mm -hmm. So the second big sort of um, pivot really for Cresset was we've moved into the structure-based web design world. We've launched new software products there. We're building up a software suite that we are now can actually go to customers and say, actually, we now do everything you need from a computational chemistry point of view. And so actually, you, know, you can just buy Crescent software. Yes. And it will do everything you want. Yes. In a way that wasn't true five or 10 years ago. I see. Okay. So expansion of capability and really positioning it as that, that single tool that you can plug in and use for... Yep. It's, either it's, you, either you, everything you in your have, program or all your programs. You need to have all the blades in your Swift Army knife. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, makes sense. So that's something that's that's happening right now, or that's that's done now, and that's out it's, there. It's or? pretty much done. So okay. we don't we don't cover all of the things that you might want to do in computational chemistry, but we cover a large enough proportion of them that for most people we will do everything they want. There, you know, there will be some companies out there that actually have special needs that we don't necessarily mm -hmm. yet provide. But we are aiming sort of in the next couple of years to fill those gaps. Yes. And so, you know, in essence, be one of the, you know, the big providers that can provide you every need. Uh, yes. As far as it comes to your early stage drug discovery. I see. Okay. So you've been making a lot of changes to the, to the product um, over, over the last um, period of time. There's also, of course, been a huge change in the world yes. <laughs> over the last 10, 11 months. We're recording this at the start of February. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I, I would guess, and, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, that perhaps some of the impact has been lessened compared to some of your customers because you're a computational company, right? And, and I'm guessing that has had its advantages during this period. But how's it been for you in this lockdown and non-lockdown and then lockdown, <laughs> you know, the period we've been going through? We, we've actually been incredibly lucky um, mm. during the, the COVID pandemic in that you know, because our stuff is all you know, computer-based, you, know, you can do it just as well at home as you could in the office. Yeah. Right? It's not like we have labs where you, know, you can't do the lab work at home and the, the neighbours complain. Yes. <laughs> and as a result, you know, moving the company to a, you know, a working from home um, paradigm was remarkably painless. Um, and I think actually it surprised all of us how painless it was mm. to the extent that you know, my guess is that you know, when all of this is over, we're still going to end up being you know, significantly more work from home than we were before. Yes. Because actually in practice, it really hasn't impacted productivity to any significant degree. Okay, that's good. And in some ways has increased productivity. 
and is there anything you think you've done as a company that's that's helped with that anything that's been particularly effective Part, well, partly i think it's having very good people um, of course, yeah. you know, the, the, the team at Crescent are you know they're talented they're passionate they're hard working and so you know they do a, a, you know, a fantastic job for us at home as you know just as they would if they're in the office yeah so that helps um and we've also always had a, a fairly hands-off management style within the mm -hmm. company. Our philosophy is, you know, we try and hire good people and then we get out of their way and let them get on with it. Right, yeah. And obviously in that environment, again, you know, having the slightly more loose reporting requirements or slightly looser interactions with people when they're working at home doesn't really impact on the day-to-day -day sort of running of the company and that, you know, people can't be micromanaged but don't expect to be micromanaged don't want to be micromanaged yes yes that makes sense so the the work that you're doing itself lends itself to remote working but also the culture that you've built yeah. i suppose enables that quite a bit as well and the, the other big advantage is of course that our customers are all in an industry that hasn't been affected massively by the true pandemic. You know, yeah the, the whole biotech world i don't think if we were selling to the restaurant industry or something, then we would have been in real trouble. <laughs> yes. Selling to the farmer industry, you know, they're all still going strong. They've still got budgets. They're still buying software. They're yeah. still buying services. So, No, absolutely. So we've talked a bit about some of the origins of the company. We've talked a bit about some of the pivots and, and challenges and things like that. You know, we, we speak to a lot of people who are thinking about starting a company in the, in the biotech sector or, you mm -hmm. know, have, have an idea that they're not sure whether to start a company or these kinds of things. If you, you know, from an entrepreneurship point of view and a building a company point of view, are there particular things that you'd, you'd pass on as advice to those people or, or anything that you would have liked to have known when you started out that you <laughs> knew <have> now? <laughs> Yeah, so I, I think the main piece of advice I'd give is go for it. Yeah, okay, um, good. Especially if you're young. Mm -hmm. um, and I know, you know when you're you know, in your early 30s or whatever and you know, recently got married and you've just got the mortgage and so on, you know, that, that, that feels like the time when you're actually, this is not the time to take risks. Um, but you can afford to take risks at that time because you have more time to get over them. Yes. Um, and, and more to learn and realistically if you just stick in the day job into your 40s and in your 50s are, are you then going to find the impetus to get out of that rut and set out on your own my guess is it's much much harder mm -hmm. so when i remember when um andy came and first invited me to come and join Crescent. so at that time i was working as a computational chemistry for Merck sharp and dome yes so okay the, um, the, the big multinational pharma company and I was very dubious about that. Did I really want to leave you know, a stable job for life with a fantastic pension with a, you know, a, a really well-regarded international company mm. to go and join a, you know, a little startup with maybe 18 months startup money and who knows what was going to happen after that. Right. <laughs> um, but I you know, decided if, you know, if not now, then when, mm -hmm. let's go for it. And you know, 20 years later, Crescent's still around and I'm, I'm thoroughly loving my job. Yes. And about a year and a bit after I left Merck, they decided to shut the site that I worked at. And so if I'd still been there, I would have been out of my year in any case. Yeah, I, I say, so, interesting. <laughs> uh, you know, there's another one where these days even stable jobs aren't. Yeah. So um, you know, if, if you have uh, a great idea for a business or uh, you know, an itch to go out and get entrepreneurial, then go for it. 
yeah yeah i i think that's certainly true i think you know the 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 job for life doesn't seem to be around anymore we'll see if it makes a comeback although i suspect not mm. <laughs> so you know again it's something we we talk to people about quite a lot is that that risk that you perceive especially if you're going to work in biotech anyway right you could go to a bigger biotech company or a pharma company and they restructure in a year's time and the same thing happens yeah. as if you run out of money right but biotechs it, it's interesting especially working as a chemist in biotech mm. um it's one of those double-edged swords, actually, especially for the, um, the you know, medicinal chemists, but actually also true for comic chemists and biotech, mm. in that the reward for success is often the same as the reward for failure. Okay. In that you know, if you don't find anything good, then the company will run out of VC money and the VCs will get fed up and they'll shut it down and out on the ear. Yes. If you succeed and you get a com you know, compound that works and it goes into the clinic, you know, what's the first thing a biotech does when they get a compound in the clinic? They shut down basic discovery because mm -hmm. they need all the money to pay the clinical research team. Yeah. And so actually your reward for success is the same as the reward for failure. It's <laughs> thank you very much for working for us. Here's your redundancy money, off you go. Yes. So I think you know, people are, you know, coming into you know, chemistry in the biotech world, I think mostly are aware that you know, careers are likely to involve lots of hops between companies mm. rather than the 30 or 40 year career at one company. Yes. Unless perhaps you're enabling other people's research. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, unless you're providing a career for other people. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you know, um, yeah, starting a company is risky. So you know, in the very early days, Crescent did run out of money. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we were at the stage where actually you know, we couldn't make payroll. Um, the advantage we had was at that stage, we didn't really have any employees as such. Right. It, was, it was just the founders. So we were paying yes. ourselves a salary, um, but we were and did stop doing that. Mm. So we all, in essence, you know, worked for six months on you know, half pay and then on no pay. Yes. Um, and you know, luckily, the sales then started to come in and we were able to start paying ourselves again. Yeah. But yeah, you know, there was yeah, you know, there were squeaky moments in the middle when it's well, yeah, okay. So how much longer can I keep doing this and pay the mortgage on the house? Yeah. Um, you know, and if it had gone on for another six months, we would have folded. Of course, so yeah. It's, it's never plain sailing. But the reward is that you're in charge of your own destiny in a way that you never are when you're a part of a bigger organization. Mm. I find that very liberating. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I suppose you touched on it there and we were talking about this before um, before we started as well. But um, as, a, as a revenue driven company, you don't necessarily always have those those investors to answer to and things like that as well. Mm -hmm. So, again, you can take those decisions and uh, and do that. And of course, if you're going to build a traditional biotech company or an asset driven company, then you probably need to raise money for that because it's extremely expensive. It's a capital, you know, if you need labs and compounds and things, it's very hard to fund that out of your savings. Yes. Um, but I, I suppose if you're able to, to have a model where there is revenue generation that funds the company, I, I don't know, my thought on this is that it really does help you to fine tune your business model when the truth is in the score that's in the bank account at the end of the month, right? It's a trade-off. Um, so yeah, Crescent's grown a lot over the years. Mm. So you know, currently there's just a bit over 40 people, I think, work for Crescent. Yeah. So we're you know, a, a decent-sized company now. But it's taken us 20 years to get here. Mm -hmm. 
And you, know, you can make an argument where you know, if we'd gone and raised a couple of million of extra seed funding back in the early days, you know, maybe we could have been at our current revenue 10 years ago. Right. And maybe nowadays we'd be an even bigger company. So mm. you know, there is always the question mark that you know, with capital, you can grow faster. Um, but the analogy I like is from uh, John Mackey, no relation. Okay. The, the, the founder of Whole Foods in the yeah. US, that's a supermarket chain of Whole Foods. And the analogy he put is that um, venture capitalists are like picking up a slightly psychotic hitchhiker with a credit card. <laughs> in, as long as you go exactly where they want to go, everything's just peachy and they'll pay for the petrol. Uh-huh. But the moment there's a disagreement, then you're the one who's thrown out of the car and they drive off with it. <laughs> I haven't heard that, but I like that. <laughs> so and there is an element of truth with that. In the, mm. you know, once you get the VCs on board, you need to be sure that you want to go where they want to go because at mm. the end of the day they are going to be the ones calling the shots yeah absolutely yeah it's it's uh, i suppose it's it's sometimes difficult to keep that discipline in in today's world because i guess you see companies elsewhere taking that investment and growing very quickly right and you yes. you know whether they're competitors or they're in related fields or what have you there's, there's always got to be a temptation there to go and do that. But I suppose it's about what are you trying to achieve and, and what are the things that are important to you as a group? Yeah, it's one of those things where the, the scientist clashes with the entrepreneur. In right. In the, you know, from an entrepreneurial point of view, then actually the prospect of, yeah, let's get a bit more capital on board. Let's hire the people we can't afford to hire at the moment. Let's grow the business mm-hmm. you know, faster and more aggressively, capture market share. That's very appealing. The flip side of that is, as a scientist, I've put a lot of effort into the scientific ideas behind the software. Yes. It's, it's my scientific baby. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I know how it all works. It's my theories. I know it works. And I've, I've published the papers and I've given mm-hmm. it to customers. And so having the risk that you know, actually if we overextend and end up you know, not being able to make payroll or going bust and the assets being bought up, then that kills my baby, right? It, right, yes, yeah. It, it's, it's, not, it's not the company that dies, it, it's the science and the ideas behind the science that might die. Yes. And that does make me a little bit more cautious than I would be otherwise. And I, I think I inherited that viewpoint from Andy, who was very much of the, the viewpoint that small companies go bust all the time. Let's make sure this one doesn't. Yeah, I can see that. And, and certainly, as you say, if you've, if you've put the underlying science and technology together, there's going to be more attachment to that and yeah, yeah that makes sense yeah and so we've talked a little bit about then the advice that you'd give to people with the entrepreneurial streak of course as well as that you've spent your career really embedded in computational chemistry in the biotech industry as well yes. um if people are starting out on that path if perhaps they're you know they're coming to the end of a phd or they're thinking about stepping into industry or or you know where, wherever they are what would you say about computational chemistry today? And what, what advice would you give to people entering into a career in computational chemistry? What are, you, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, it's a fascinating field to be in. Um, just because there still is so much we don't know. Mm. Um, so to give an example, yeah, I mentioned our first product was a virtual screening product. Yes. So you, know, you come to us saying, I need a new compound that's going to be active against target X. And we'll run a screen on all the things you can commercially buy. And we'll give you a list of, say, 100, here's 100 compounds you should go and buy. Mm. And we still do run effectively that as a service. 
So if we did that to you and said, here's the 100 compounds you should buy and test, and you went and bought the 100 compounds and tested them, if five of them were actually active, you'd be pretty happy. Yeah. If 10 of them were active, you'd be extremely happy. We have seen in the past 20% hit rates or a bit okay. more, but, but that's rare. Yeah. Okay. And you also, not infrequently, you test all 100 and none of them work. Right. Yes. So if you think about what that means in terms of the prediction success rate, it means mm. on, on a good day, 90% of my predictions were wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. And when you look at it from that way around, yeah, there's a hell of a lot we still need to learn about the science. Mm. So I think, you know, from an intellectual point of view, computational chemistry is, is challenging. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, we're expanding, we're hiring. I end up interviewing a lot of people who are in the situation of just coming out of their PhD and just coming out of their postdoc. Mm. And it's, it's one of the things that I think drives a lot of people into this general field is they want to make the world a better place. Yes. You know, they want to cure disease. They, you know, they want to be the person who found the cure to cancer or Alzheimer's or mm -hmm. Parkinson's or whatever it happened to be. And from a computational point of view, there are actually two quite distinct career paths. Um, so one is to actually you know, go into the biotech or the big pharma world where you're working on programs, you're helping chemists, you're, you're actively trying to find the drug that's going to cure Alzheimer's. Yes. Um, what I do is actually slightly different. I'm trying to find the tool to help people find the compound. Yeah. So they're digging for gold. And my viewpoint is that more gold's going to get found if I invent a better shovel than if I sort of went to the fields and started digging myself. Yes. Um, so the downstream, the downside of that is I, I believe I'm making a difference, mm -hmm. um, but I can't, I'm not going to be able to point to the Alzheimer's drug when one finally appears and say, that's my drug. Uh, right. That's the yeah, drug yeah, that I invented. Yeah. Well, what I would hope is that at some point, some of the techniques and some of the software I've, I've developed have been helpful in getting to that point, but it's never going to be mine. Mm. So I'm, I'm sort of one step further back removed from that saving the world viewpoint. But I do believe that I'm having a, a bigger impact by developing better tools than I would yes. be actually working on the, the cold face. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. It's similar to, we had someone on, on the podcast um, at the beginning of the year who talked about um, being a doctor. And yeah. as a doctor, you can help a certain number of people. But imagine if you found a drug. Then you're helping and millions of people. Then you have millions of people. And yes. I suppose it's that, that again, that, that one step back from that. And then imagine if you find the tool that helps you find a hundred drugs. drugs. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. I'm not going to invent a drug, but I may invent you know, a tenth of a percent of <laughs> dozens of drugs. That's, yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, fair enough. And, and just to pick up on something you said there. So you, one of the um, challenges I think people face when they're, trying to make that transition for academia from academia to industry is how how do you make it right how do you take yep. that step a lot of companies look for people with industry experience and, mm -hmm. and it can be challenging to to make that transition so when you interview people who are from an academic background and don't have that industry experience so there are particular things that you look for to see if they'll likely make that transition yeah so what i i tend to look for two things mm -hmm. um, i look for people who've got a, a a knowledge of and a passion for chemistry. Right. Okay. But particularly what we do, I want people who want to know how molecules tick. Yes. And the other thing I look for that is actually very hard to find is I want people who have at least a, 
a modicum of programming skill. Okay. Okay, because you know, we're designing better computational shovels. I mean, that, that is going to involve writing software. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can't invent new computational methods without writing the software to embody those methods. You know, it doesn't have to be beautiful software. Yeah. It doesn't have to be production-ready software, but you have to be able to code to at least some degree. Yes. So, and to an extent, an ability to code is useful, even if you're not going into methods development. If, if you're just going out to work for you know, J&J or Merck or you know, a biotech somewhere, you're going to be more productive and more employable as a modeler if you've got a decent amount of coding and scripting skills. Just because these days, a lot of computational chemistry tasks do work on big data. You're not looking at a molecule, you're right, yeah. at libraries of hundreds or thousands or billions of molecules. Yes. And so you, you can't do those by pointing and clicking. You have to be able to write scripts. And again, you know, do you need to be a, a, a professional level programmer? No. Mm-hmm. Do you need to hack a Python script together to solve a problem? That's an incredibly valuable skill. Yes. Yeah, no, it makes sense. So, so having those um, supplementary skills yeah. is really key. And then also you talked about actually being a chemist who really likes chemistry is helpful. It's, I think, just having a passion for what you do. Yes, okay. Um, yeah, if, if you're going to spend the rest of your life doing chemistry, then not liking chemistry is not a good place to start. Right? So, <laughs> so when people come in, you know, one of the things we ask when people come in is, you know, part of the standard interview for a scientist is to give us a talk. Mm-hmm. And most of the time we could care less what the talk's actually about. Right. Because a lot of time, you know, it's not stuff that's directly relevant to us, but it's, you know, were you engaged? Were you interested? Were you aware of the ramifications of your research and how it touched on other things around? Did you collaborate with other people on that research? Had you thought about the deep questions behind the experiments you ran as part of your PhD or your postdoc? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's that context for the talk is much more important than you know, whatever the actual talk was about. Yes. In determining whether I think somebody's, uh, you know, we must have this person or it's maybe not, let's move on to the next game. Yeah, I see. And it's an interesting um, point that you make there around the ramifications. Yes. So some, sometimes, and this is this is a generalization, sometimes academic research can live in a little bit of a bubble at times, yeah. right? A tiny little box, and you know, yeah. everything there is to know about the box and yeah. nothing much about what's outside that box. Yes. Yeah, interesting. No, that's that's helpful. Thank you for that, Mark. Um, you you mentioned the pivot that you guys have made recently, and the the capability, the expansion mm-hmm. of capability that you've been building into your platform. Is that kind of the big the big project for you now? Is that what's next for Cresset? There's actually there's a couple of projects for Cresset. So that's one of them is mm-hmm. to you know, take ourselves from being one of the sort of the second tier web discovery software companies into the the first tier. Yes, we'll supply all of your needs. Uh, but the other thing we're doing at the moment is um, a slightly different venture. We've teamed up with another company called Elixir, mm-hmm. uh, who are a spin-out from AstraZeneca. Uh, they developed a software suite for managing the sort of drug discovery chemistry process. Okay. So you know, once you've got some molecules that you might want to make, let's sort them, let's make some decisions about which ones are actually going to make, and then look at, well, who's going to make them and where and over what timeline and which ones have been made and have they been tested yet? And you know, all of the informatics around the decision-making process involved in that. Yeah, interesting. And so we're teaming up with them to build a, a bigger platform 
because the bit that they didn't have was the bit about where do the ideas come from mm. and that's really where we live it's about sparking new ideas and so the the sort of joint venture we put together really brings the best of both worlds that we bring all of the you know, the design and analysis knowledge of you know, what of the compounds you've made told you and how can you use that to design something better yes with their expertise in information management and information flow and that you know, once you decide what you're going to make then how's it you know, how's it going to get made you're going to make it in-house you're going to outsource mm. it who are you going to outsource it to over what timeline what are the priorities and so having the two of those together really closes off the sort of design make test analyze cycle yeah interesting so, we, we so that, are... that's sort of in development at the moment we're just launching that product now and we're, we're hoping it could be um, you know, a real game changer in how people approach sort of chemistry informatics in a wider sense yes and, and taking small steps closer to that new drug button right <laughs> yeah it's 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 taking us a little bit further towards the sort of um you know the chemistry management rather than just the complication of chemistry side so yeah it's you know, expanding our limit a bit makes sense so it's going to be a busy period for you it's very busy yes <laughs> yes so as it, you know, in the last year um we sort of increased our headcount by more than a fifth okay well we wish you the best of luck with it thank you so much for your time mark thank you very much tom Thanks for joining us on Careers in Discovery, and don't forget to subscribe for more insight into the world of drug discovery and R&D. Do take a look at our sponsors, Singular Talent, and their mission to make hiring better for companies and individuals in drug discovery and R&D. You can find them at www.singulartalent.io. See you next time. <laughs>